Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin, in Berkeley, California today. And as always, I'm joined by... In uh, Montrose of Houston, Bob Bezenko. And I want to show you this because we now have postcards. And if you want any, send us an email and we will send them to you. You can put them out at coffee shops and bookstores and libraries and any place where politically involved and interested people might meet. And as always, we thank you for following. So if you're watching this on YouTube, please subscribe. Same as if you're listening to it on a podcast, subscribe, share. If you're on YouTube, put some comments down at the bottom, like us, follow us on social media, um, and do all that stuff to let people know about the great stuff we do, and especially the great guests we have on, like today's. So, And if you want postcards, let us know. Yep, and you can just email us at greenredpodcast at gmail to get a postcard order. Uh, We've already been getting them in, actually. Uh, And then the other thing is, if you like our content and if you like our show, you know, we ask that you support us more than just sharing things on social media. You can also become a donor and you can go to greenredpodcast.org and hit the support button and make a one-time donation, or you can become a patron at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. We have now 19 patrons and we've had a goal of 20. So someone out there could be our 20th patron and support the green and red podcast our small and scrappy podcast but on with the show so today we're very excited uh to have a couple of longtime friends and comrades on the show with us we're going to be joined by shannon biggs and pineopa plant um and we're going to be talking about uh as we've said in uh many episodes before there's a there's a big climate talk coming up in november in glasgow uh, the UN Climate Talks, that's the 26th COP, I believe, is going to be coming up. But what we like to do on this show is actually talk about things that, you know, you're not going to hear the policymakers or the corporate lobbyists or the NGO types talking about in Glasgow. And so we've been having shows on uh, different types of fossil fuel resistance, police state response to uh, fossil fuel resistance. You know, we just actually had a show about forest defenders in the Pacific Northwest who have been linking forest defense and climate And so today we're going to be talking about indigenous resistance to fossil fuels and then the rights of nature. Um, And just and we'll we'll get into this more in the show, a little background, but like kind of two relevant things with rights of nature that we'll probably be talking about is in 2011 in Cochabamba, Bolivia. There was a universal declaration of the rights of Mother Earth was put out. And then also uh, the countries of Ecuador and Bolivia have actually both amended their constitutions. And so we'll be talking about that. But I want to introduce our guests, which is uh, my longtime friend, Penny Opal Plant, who is an indigenous grandmother, co-founder of Movement Rights, uh, Idle No More SF Bay, and a signatory of the indigenous women of the Americas Defending Mother Earth Treaty. And she's been a protector and defender of the sacred systems of life for over 40 years. Welcome, Penny. Thanks, Scott. And then we're also joined by Shannon Biggs, who is the co-founder and director of Movement Rights. Uh, and is an internationally recognized leader of the Rights of Nature movement, co-founder of the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature, uh, co-editor of two books around the rights of nature, um, also has worked with Global Exchange and the International Forum on Globalization. Uh, And so welcome to Green and Red, Shannon. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Thanks, Bob. I'm so really happy to join you this morning. 
very, very excited to have you here with us. And maybe uh, just because it's a little bit topical, by the time we'll be airing this recording, uh, oil ha will have started flowing through the Line 3 pipeline, which we've seen eight years of resistance around just in the past year or so. We've seen over a thousand people arrested, you know, escalated police violence, escalated charges, surveillance, all of this funded actually by Enbridge. Um, and I'm just wondering if you, if we could just start off with um, any thoughts you might have on, on this milestone, for lack of a better word. Yeah, I mean, it's, it violates indigenous rights, violates the rights of the rivers, the rights of the bodies of water. It, it violates the history of the treaties. It, it's, it's such an atrocious development that Biden with a stroke of the pen could have stopped. And it, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's literally heartbreaking. It, it's just like when the oil started to flow through Dapple. It's the same thing. And here we are at this most critical moment when, when we, if we don't, if, if, the, if the people that think that they're in charge, if they don't stop fossil fuel pro pro projects, if they don't stop extraction, if they don't just completely eliminate fossil fuels, then I'm a grandmother. My, my grandchildren will not be able to I mean, I can't even imagine the world that, that we're leaving these children. I really can't even imagine it because it, it will be so much different than what we've had the pleasure and the blessings to enjoy. And so, you know, I'm sure that there will be lots of ceremonies over the weekend, lots of heartache, um, the, the rights of the Manuman the wild rice there um, might be an avenue to stop some of the harms, but there's already been uh, toxic fluids leaking into the rivers and the bodies of water there in Minnesota. And, and I just saw yesterday or heard yesterday that some of the fish in those areas already have lesions on their bodies. So it, it's happening that quickly. And there are so many river crossings um, of line three that could damage the water, I don't know, forever maybe, at least lifetimes, not only for the non-human beings that live in, above, and around those bodies of water, but the human beings and, and everybody downstream. I spend some time pretty regularly wondering what's the tipping point for the number of pollutants and toxins going into all of the bodies of water. I mean, we already know that some of the Great Lakes, you, you can't drink that water. There's so many areas you can't drink out of creeks and streams anymore. Um, so that that's what's happening with Line 3. It's just absolutely heartbreaking. And um, I think that people are very angry about it, but personally, as an older woman that's been tracking my own process through, you know, all these decades of doing what I can to ensure that there's a safe world for all the babies, um, I know that underneath that, the anger is almost always profound sadness. And I think that's what so many of us are going to be experiencing this weekend. You know, just 
another horrible thing that capitalism has allowed to happen, destroying the future for, you know, life moving forward. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Um, the, uh, the, the other part of the story that I would like to think is a, is a little more uplifting is the, is the resistance that we've seen, not just the resistance that we've seen to line three, but, you know, we've seen movements around the Keystone XL pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline, which we've all, you know, been part of together, to be honest, uh, in many ways. And, um, and it, it seems particularly at Standing Rock with the Dakota Access Pipeline, there, uh, there was a watershed moment where it's become this much more energized, larger, broader movement. And, and I'm wondering if you could uh, just say a few things about that. Well, I, I think that Standing Rock, I mean, there, there have been indigenous people in on Turtle Island and around the world rising up for 500 years in, on this continent. And I think because of social media and, you know, news sources like Amy Goodman and podcasts like yours, that the, the word is able to get out in a way that it never has before. Um, I mean, going back to 1973 with Wounded Knee, it wasn't until uh, Sasheen Littlefeather refused to accept the award for Marlon Brando at the Academy Awards that people really knew what was happening out at Wounded Knee in occupied South Dakota. And so I think the thing that makes all of this very different right now and inspiring to people around the world is that the way that we as indigenous people meet these powerful forces that try to roll us all over. And we, we meet it with prayer and we meet it with our spiritual power and all of our ancestors standing with us and moving forward from that place is has proved to be very inspiring to people all around the world of every shade of skin. And I think that, you know, sometimes we're not successful in the short term, but given that we have very, very long memories, I mean, seven generations back and seven generations forward, um, we understand that that moving in this way from a place of, of power and love for the sacred system of life for that includes all of the waters, that includes all of the standing people, the flying ones, you know, the, the ones in the water, all of all of our non-human relatives, including humanity, that that, that will eventually be one of the most important things that helps shift humanity from this uh, colonial systems around the world that has created all the harms that we see today. I mean, if the European relatives had come over here in the correct way and the, proto the welcoming protocols had been followed and there wasn't the doctrine of discovery and there wasn't manifest destiny, then you know, imagine what that would be like here on Turtle Island. There, there wouldn't be these poisons everywhere in the air and the water and in the soil. I mean, we would have a very, very different world. And instead of exporting capitalism, maybe the, this, these lands would be exporting the reminding of countries around the world of how we are meant to be within this sacred system of life. 
you know, humans are one of the newest life forms on Mother Earth's belly. And we're the, the most ill-behaved. And the humility that indigenous people have for our tiny little place in that system of life is what is, has been tried to be squashed because capitalism, property rights, you know, destruction of forests and everything that we need to live would not work, would not function, would not even be a thought form if humanity had remembered our place, that we are not even, I don't even like the word stewards of the environment or even the word environment. We have a sacred responsibility for remembering our place in this system, for making sure that none of our relatives are harmed in any way um, outside of what everybody, including non-human relatives, need to survive. Like they're meat eaters, other creatures are meat eaters. So, you know, but anyway, I'm digressing. I'm sorry, I kind of get on a roll sometimes about this, but um, yeah. Good, we're all about to get on the roll. Bob? Um, what, what gets me is um, I'm a professor, and so I talk to people who are a lot younger than me, and you know, and the the climate crisis seems pretty important to them, really important to them, like to the extent where I've heard them say, like you know, all this other stuff, the economy, all this, you know, as bad as it is, it's it's this like you know fear of like literally the world being extinct, and yet you know we've seen these you know protests and the repression at these protests, the images from Dapple, these horrible images and arrest. And, and um, it doesn't seem to, there seems to be a disconnection. Now, to some degree, obviously, the media isn't going to tell you as much about the protests and the reaction against it. But still, like, why is it that I think now, you know, pretty much all of us understand that we are in, a, in, a, in an intense crisis. You know, we've, and that's happened. I think that recognition has come you know, it's, it's been building up and now it's really there. At the same time, police can go in and arrest a thousand people over line three protests. And most folks don't know about that. And I just wondered what that, like, how do you get from this clear recognition on behalf of like, especially younger people that the world is like teetering on the edge and we're all gonna, you know, we're all gonna, it's gonna be ugly to doing more than just saying, oh, isn't that too bad? Or look at those horrible pictures. Like, you know, how do we get, to the point where we're actually, you know, trying to do something really meaningful about it. And how do we convince people that, you know, understanding the problem and being sympathetic is, isn't enough, unfortunately, so. I mean, um, th this is Shannon. I, I um, you know, when I've, I taught a couple of semesters of college when I was just barely out of college um, in like 1990 or, and, um, <laughs> I remember explaining, I taught a class on international relations and uh, I taught climate change. And, you know, the, the college students at that time, like many of them were hearing about climate change in my classroom for the first time. Um, and now six-year-olds are having conversations about climate change. So there's, there's you know, clearly been... Um, uh, it, you know, the shift has been so tremendous. It's so visible. It's so visceral. Can't escape it. And 
Um, and so I think, yeah, young people are pissed off and um, they want to take action. And they're also not getting their news um, from just the usual sources. So you see this, you know, this more radical shift, which in many ways isn't radical at all. This is, um, you know, um, survival. It's not just survival one-on-one, but it's really redefining um, what is our relationship as humans with the rest of the living world. We're not owners of the world, but yet that's what the law says, literally, that uh, the earth is property and therefore corporations and, you know, capitalism is the, you know, there's this political arm, a legal arm, an economic arm that we have to, you know, use this system that's been manufactured over a really short period of time of, you know, this, uh, but we can undo all that. Um, and in fact, we can choose to confront the system as it is um, of our own accord, or it will happen for us. Um, you know, the, the, you know, climate change is, as Penny often says, like, you know, it's Mother Earth's response system. Um, and it'll shake off whatever it has to in order to put life in balance. Um, you know, humans have um, clearly been treating, you know, not every human, but the, the you know, mainstream you know, popular culture and, um, you know, law and politics um, have been treating the earth as this trash can, as this thing that we can own, profit from, and throw away as if there is a such thing as a way. And so you see this, you know, uprising um, of how do we actually get back in balance? And so back to the question, Scott, that you asked Penny about, you know, indigenous um, uprising and Standing Rock and, and all of these years of resistance, the kind of resistance that I think has taken place over the last, by mainstream folks over the last um, decades has been um, very civilized. You know, it's like vote for the right people and sign a petition. And of course, those are all things to do, but that's like the, the that's, it's, that's not, it's not even, it's just a ground floor of what we need to do and the leadership of where we need to go uh, and what we need to do. I mean, Standing Rock is a perfect example in recent history that really demonstrates the level of commitment indigenous people have always shown in terms of putting their bodies on the line, black, brown, indigenous people, always putting their bodies on the line in the defense of mother earth and, and to protect and for indigenous people demonstrating that the level of commitment that we need to have to change the system has to be, you know, it's it's happening at line three. We have to stand for water is life. And it's time for allies, indigenous allies, to rise up, to stand and take their place under the guidance of that, you know, indigenous uh, leadership to, because, it's not just that, uh, you know, indigenous people have been standing up and people of color have been standing up for, you know, this, you know, whether it's Black Lives Matter on the streets or whether it's, you know, folks at Standing Rock in line three, standing before, you know, the machine as it, as it is. Um, that's the level that we all need to be accelerating um, our own 
uh, you know, our, our own, that's the level, the, the voting thing and signing petitions, that's not going to do it. We have to, you know, really rise up. And it's no coincidence that 80% of the remaining biodiversity on planet earth is in indigenous hands globally. Um, indigenous people have been the keepers of these original instructions of how to care for and live in balance with the earth. Uh, and that's another, you know, that's a powerful reason for, as we make a transition, who do we look to for leadership, for returning, uh, you know, into some sort of balance and, and to move forward uh, and reclaim our rightful place as humans, not as owners of the earth or separate from nature, but one species in the whole sacred system of life. Um, and, and so for me, that is, um, you know, that's whether it's the, you know, the battle cry that that's mother nature calling out and, and telling us and showing us indigenous people are showing us black and brown people are showing us how to stand up. Um, and we just need to do it. We just need to stand together and do it. Um, and, and join them in, you know, on, on line three, you know, be, you know, this is, this is about confronting the patriarchy, confronting the system that is um, in every way possible. Um, and one of those ways is rights of nature. That, and that was my next question. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm wondering if you, you know, could actually your organization movement rights, you know, is a is big advocate of rights of nature. And I'm wondering if you could maybe just start off with telling us a little bit about what the rights of nature is, just kind of give us a little bit of background on it. Penny, you want to take that? I'll, I'll take the first part of it and then I'll pass it over to you, Shannon. Um, so the, the rights of nature, the, that terminology to me is a transitional terminology because to me personally, the rights of nature means the rights of Mother Earth, the recognizing the rights of Mother Earth, which is such a bizarre concept, right? Because we cannot live without everything that our beautiful planet offers us to exist. And so the, this whole concept of the rights of nature, the rights of Mother Earth stands on the foundation of the original instructions of indigenous people. And the original instructions for you know, folks that aren't familiar with that term, uh, refers to the thousands and thousands of years of traditional ecological knowledge of uh, spiritual information that has come through to indigenous people about how we are to live in balance and harmony and reciprocity within the sacred system of life. So that's the foundation of the rights of nature. And, um, you know, an example would be, and this example is quickly getting turned on its head, I must say before I explain it. Let's say uh, when a butterfly comes at a certain time of year, that's when we know to plant certain seeds. Or, you know, when this bird starts flying to south or north, that's when we know that it's time to harvest uh, these berries or whatever. And that system is getting turned on its head because of climate disruption. But for thousands and thousands of years, that was the 
the basic knowledge accumulated um, in order to live in the way that we're meant to live. And then I'm gonna pass it over to Shannon who has actually been involved in this movement from the very beginning of its iteration in the 90s. 90s? Uh, well, I, I don't think our DNA. Of, uh, but it, let's say the early 2000s, which is, you know, mid 2000s is when like Penny and I first met and started working on some of these concepts about rights. And, and I mean, the term rights of nature already, as she said, it's a transitional language because what we're really talking about is, you know, that we have we have this system of laws uh, in Western law that talks about rights. You're either a rights holder or your property, period. And, you know, women, indigenous people, stolen, you know, Africans, uh, you know, who are brought here to become slaves, all of them are considered property. And as such, you know, they had owners. And nature is, uh, you know, and, and none of them actually, you know, if we're really talking about what a rights mean, um, you know, rights exist by virtue of being, you know, born of being a living, breathing thing. We have a system that also recognizes uh, corporations as persons, which is, um, you know, they're, they're actual property. Corporations like a piece of paper. Um, so what rights of nature is isn't just about a lot of people think it's a it's about the you know just the law about changing um uh you know changing the law but when we look back at past movements for rights for you know women's suffrage movements or civil rights movements um you know th these are not movements motivated by let's change a law um these are are motivated by these rights already exist uh, and we're confronting an unjust system that says our that, that is denying our rights um, and nature or mother earth the ecosystems that sustain our life i mean it is the most absurd concept that that we treat nature as property um, but that's colonialism for you. And that's, you know, the capitalist system for you. And we have these laws that not only back it up, but enforce it. So fracking wants to come into your community. You don't have, a, you know, a way to say, you know, no to it. Um, but ultimately, as, as new as this concept is of, well, let's change the law. So local communities that have written uh, laws that say nature is no longer recognized as property, here, um, in a way, that's that is sort of civil disobedience by local lawmaking, um, and that's a good start. But one of the things that Penny and I noticed at the be, you know, in the earlier days of uh, U.S. communities, municipalities passing rights of nature laws, really to stop some, you know, ugly harm from coming in, they saw it as a trick of the law. And so they would pass along and they would sit down. And in a lot of these communities, they were white rural communities where calling somebody an environmentalist is a fighting word. Um, and Tree so, hugger. <laughs> so this was so when we decided to start movement rights, we decided to really start from the essence of where rights of nature comes from. 
those underpinnings of rights of nature really are, um, you know, the system of life itself. There are laws to nature. Um, you know, that's that there, there are boundaries of, of what we can do. Um, and indigenous people have been actually holding those, you know, that relationship. So the underpinning of, of rights of nature is really indigenous cosmology, traditional ecological wisdom, how to live in balance um, with the earth. So I think that when we talk about rights of nature and the when Penny and I got together, we'd been doing this work in our own respective organizations for a few years. Uh, and in 2014, you know, we sat around the kitchen table and said, you know, what's happening in these communities in the U.S. is one thing. Uh, but globally, the rights of nature movement was uh, being led mostly by indigenous people because it is their understanding of living in uh, in balance with the earth. And in many ways, if they were passing laws, um, Ecuador and Bolivia and now Colombia, they're, you know, New, New Zealand, Aotearoa, um, in, you know, all of these countries in the last 10 years that have recognized rights of nature have almost all had the underpinning or been led by indigenous uh, resistance because this is their understanding of how you know, uh, of what are the values behind, you know, the law. So the law is like the smallest piece, just like with any movement for change, you know, changing the law is the tiniest piece. So rights of nature, I think the, the biggest misunderstanding is that it's a legal strategy. Um, and really this is about, um, uh, you know, indigenous resistance, indigenous um, understanding of how to live in balance with the earth. And so we started movement rights to really come to that intersection of climate justice, because this is system change work, um, indigenous led rights of nature, uh, and to really showcase what does it really look like? What should it really look like? This isn't about just passing a law uh, and then sitting down. This is about transforming you know, the entire system, confronting um, all of these things, and in particular, you know, we worked with Casey Camp Hornick, who uh, is uh, an elder for the Ponca Nation. She's the chair of our board. And we sat down with her in 2015 and started developing a long-term plan to shift how rights of nature looks in Turtle Island. And the Ponca were willing to become the first to recognize rights of nature in their tribal law. And as Casey says, um, you know, it was because we we saw it as the first time in Western law our values were represented in Western, you know, in Western law, and we see now there are five uh, uh, tribes and one First Nations uh, tribe that has passed rights of nature into law. Um, but again, this is this isn't just about law. You know, the Ponca are acting as guardians of their of their rivers. They're, um, you know, they're taking over how decisions are made about water by, you know, by looking at a river as a holistic system. Uh, how do we care for that? What is our responsibility to that? So rights of nature is now becoming uh, not about a legal terminology, but a movement to how do we shift 
um, our mindset? How do we shift the culture toward understanding that recognizing rights of nature is really recognizing our human responsibility to the ecosystems that give us life? Incidentally, it's it also asserts in tribal sovereignty. And, and so I think that that is another aspect that is really attractive to a lot of, you know, recognized tribes, federally recognized and state recognized, because every single treaty in the United States with tribal people has been violated. And so this is a way of saying, hey, uh, yeah, we're going to do this our way now because y'all have poisoned everything around us and in our own bodies. And so it's a, that's another very exciting um, avenue forward with the rights of nature. You are listening to the silky smooth sounds of the green and red podcast. And as always, we thank you for listening to us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And then as always, uh, we would like to ask you to subscribe uh, to us on whatever format you listen to, whether it be on podcast or on our YouTube channel. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are on Linktree slash green and red podcast and we now also have postcards and if you have a coffee house or a library or a bookstore or someplace like that in your area that might be uh, a great spot to put some of these just ask us and we will send them to you free of charge to spread the word about the green and red podcast and you can email us at green red podcast at gmail to get uh, a, a packet of your of your postcards uh and then if you really like us you can uh donate and you know we we are very happy to get the donation and have the small base of small donors that we have uh and so you can either become a patron at patreon.com backslash green red podcast or you can make a one-time donation at green and red podcast.org and just hit that support button it's also on the postcards uh and so uh you know thanks for listening and enjoy the show I'm kind of curious. It's where, you know, there's, you say there's five tribes which have put this into law and then one First Nations. Um, when you were also talking about the local municipalities, are there other municipalities like outside of tribal nations where, where that's been implemented? Like rural Oregon? I, I imagined rural Oregon when you were saying that, but somewhere like that. I think there are about, um, I, I want to say, um, Maybe there's 30, there's a few dozen communities that have recognized rights of nature. I wanna, you know, call out the, uh, the that in um, Ohio, in the citizens of Toledo recognize the rights of Lake Erie. And, you know, that I think has been um, pretty inspiring for a lot of people um, in, in the sense that um, Lake Erie doesn't live in their municipal district. You know, I mean, they're, it's, 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 a, it's bigger than Lake Erie. I mean, Lake Erie is bigger than Toledo, Ohio. So um, it's, it's become, you know, this, uh, you know, interesting story about how do we protect the rights of rivers that was inspired by the, in New Zealand, the Maori people recognizing the rights of the Wanganui River. We took an indigenous delegation to, you know, uh, a few years ago to look and visit the Maori and to you know share knowledge between the indigenous people of North America that we brought to uh, the Wanganui and 
uh, and learn from them as well. And, you know, that these ideas are really catching fire or that's a probably not the best word here in California, but they're really, uh, <laughs> they're, they're definitely inspiring a lot of people. Um, uh, and there, there are, I mean, we worked with, um, municipalities in, you know, in Mendocino County to recognize the rights of nature in Santa Monica, uh, California, many in, uh, rural Pennsylvania, um, and in Washington state, I mean, in Florida, Orange County has recognized the rights of nature. So not places, you know, so it's uh, in New Mexico, um, so it's definitely been been going on um, for a while. I think the first community to recognize rights of nature was Tamacoboro, Pennsylvania, before Ecuador recognized uh, rights of nature in their constitution. But the big- which was that was two thousand eight when the Ecuadorans did it, right? I think it was twenty ten. Twenty ten. Yeah. Um, uh, but I mean, you might be right, but I think it was 2010 and, um, or no, maybe it was 2008, <laughs> but, um, I was reading up on it a little bit before we started. <laughs> um, but these things are, the difference was that when they passed the constitutional change in Ecuador, there were, in, you know, the 52% of people in Ecuador are indigenous. Uh, so there is a cultural uh, you know, you can, you can, it's tangible in Ecuador. The uh, indigenous cosmology is part of even mainstream culture there. Um, and while they were at the constitutional convention, there were uh, indigenous, you know, shamans and other, you know, indigenous people present praying um, around the rights of nature in the constitutional assembly. So pretty different um, than what we have you know, here um, in the U.S. So you don't, uh, won't probably see Joe Manchin doing that. So <laughs> <laughs> not anytime soon. I don't. I no. agree. Yeah. But, um, but I think- just wanted to add something since you had mentioned um, Aotearoa, Shannon, and that is that when we were talking to the Maori folks there about the rights of the Wanganui River, which was the first river in the world to be have their rights recognized under the law. And that was under colonial law there too. Um, that the way that they worked that was to do on the ground conversations with the people along the Wanganui River for two to three years. I think it was three years. So when we talk about shifting culture in order to have these rights recognized, we're really talking about helping people, non-Indigenous people, understand what we're really talking about, because it's, it's a concept that, you know, mainstream folks, even you know, some revolutionary folks, they haven't really considered it as a way forward that uh, wipes away a lot of the harms that, that the colonial systems have been perpetrating. And so there, there have been examples around the world where governments have just made these laws from the top down without doing the, the work on the ground to help people understand. And those laws have had to be rescinded and then reenacted once they have all of these conversations along the way with community members, all kinds of community members, um, to, to have them help them understand what we're really talking about. Because it's not a, a thought form that is part of 
any of the colonial cultures around the world. One thing I'm curious about is there's this corporatization or privatization of nature. Um, and I'm wondering if there's been any sort of response or reaction or backlash from corporate America where in some of these municipalities where the rights of nature have been have like been enacted. Like one thing I'm thinking of is like, you know, there's plastic bag bans in certain places and then certain mostly red state Republicans go in and like you, you know, they put a ban on bag bans. And I'm wondering if there's been any sort of response like that. Anytime you start to make a difference, um, you're going to find a response. I think at first the, the the small communities that recognized rights of nature were ignored. Uh, they also recognized that uh, as a community, they had the right to make decisions that affect their lives. So they were also declaring that the jurisdiction for decision-making was within their municipality. Um, that's you know, loosely called community rights. And um, I think at first, you know, what we see are, are, are corporations, I mean, you pass a law in order for the corporation to go in and do the project they want to do, um, they actually have to undo the law. And to undo the law, they have to say there's no such thing as local, uh, you know, sovereignty, and there's no such thing as um, nature as a rights holder, rather than going to court in the early days, they just didn't, they, they sort of skipped over that community. I mean, just, there's plenty of other places to uh, exploit that don't have these laws. So I think what you see at the beginning is they ignore you and, and then the fly, it just, you know, becomes too, you know, then they have to start addressing it. But they have, there have been some challenges in a couple of places uh, and in those places, um, the laws have been, you know, undone sometimes on a technicality, the way most laws are done, uh, are, are undone that are uh, empowering of, you know, local self-governance or, uh, you know, protecting ecosystems from what corporations want to do. Um, so I think, so there has been some backlash and I think it corresponds with every fossil fuel state in the United States has now passed laws um, banning, uh, protesting um, fossil fuel, you know, infrastructure. You're like if you're standing and you know you're you're now a felon um, for trying to stop fossil fuels. So, um, uh, and and in Ohio, the legislature is trying to undo the rights of you know, nature and it's out of their jurisdiction. So there's all these technical arguments, um, which is why the cultural piece of rights of nature, you know, cause that's right. all boring. Who cares? I mean, we're confronting the machine one way or the other and rights of nature is as much a, is, is more of a cultural shift to say, uh, you know, I mean, the, the kids who sat in at the lunch counters in, during the civil rights movement, they weren't there, you know, they, they, they were confronting local law, Woolworths, uh, customer policy, whatever laws, state law and national law by sitting in a whites only section. And they sat there uh, at great, you know, harm to themselves to demonstrate the power of you know, what does it take to actually confront the system and change the culture? And now, you know, those things are celebrated 
on, you know, stamps, you know, you can find Freedom Riders and Rosa Parks and, you know, you can buy stamps of all of these things that at the time were um, illegal apps. So the first thing we have to do is recognize that we have to break unjust law. Um, so I don't care uh, what the law you know, I'm not I'm not necessarily against the rule of law, but I am against unjust law um, and law that protects minority of money, wealth, corporate, um, you know, the, the corporate elites. Um, if the laws are protecting them at the expense of people and the planet, then they forfeit those rights. Those those laws are unjust and we have to we have to break them. So how do we do that? you know, yes, we use the law. Yes, we use the culture. Yes, we use our bodies. We have to do all of these things. Um, but if we think the law is a magic trick that's going to save us, um, we have a lot of work to do to get there. And not much time. <laughs> and the good thing about rights of nature is it is like, I think the fastest growing environmental movement, certainly that I've seen in my lifetime. When we first started talking about rights of nature, I mean, people thought we were nuts, literally, um, uh, you, you know, confronted by, you know, hecklers sometimes in audiences where I've been, you know, chased out of town by torch wielding villagers uh, and tea partiers, like literally um, at times um, talking about, you know, how dare I talk about the, you know, the, the rights of nature and people saying, well, how'd you get here? Did you ride a horse? Um, you know, all of these sort of ridiculous conversations that, um, that we have, because we have a system that's in place um, that, you know, operates a certain way, but it doesn't have to be there. It's really actually pretty freaking new. Um, and these laws, a system of laws are pretty new. Um, we're too obedient as a society. Penny, Oh, <laughs> Carlos, Carlos wanted to say some things. Um, Carlos has a disobedient streak in him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Carlos is a, a social media star. So, you know, um, but I think that, you know, the idea that law is on our side, um, if, if laws are unjust, every movement for people's rights has had to break those laws as part of the the response and the rights of nature has moved so quickly globally and i think is starting to pick up such steam here in the you know the the ponca passed the rights of nature in 2018 and already all of these communities have uh, indigenous communities have passed uh, rights of nature laws we have a webinar on october 19th where we're talking about the advancements of rights of nature that are really exciting. We have Frank Bibio from the White Earth uh, Band of Ojibwe, who's the lawyer who's recognizing the sacred rights of the Manuman rice. Um, they're actually taking it to court. Um, and so what does that look like in the US? It's the first time we've actually seen nature going to court on behalf of you know itself. So we have you know people going to court on behalf of an ecosystem, on behalf of us, you know, the sacred rice. Um, we have people in Ponca and uh, recognizing uh, the rights of the rivers uh, that cross three states. 
and beginning to work with tribes along those three states to really do all of the things that, you know, taking away the power from the EPA, let's start doing our own, how do we know if the water is healthy? How do, how do we start to take responsibility? You know, what is, you know, it's ceremony, it's sometimes science, it's changing the laws, it's changing the culture, it's inviting people in. And like Penny was alluding to, or talking about the Wanganui people, one of the reasons they passed the law that's, uh, it was, as they said, is what's not for us, we already know our relationship. This is our sacred ancestor. This river is our sacred ancestor. Um, we passed this law for the Pakia or the settler people here so that they can understand what the relationship is and invite them in to this community of, of you know, how, how humanity is just one species uh, and that we, you know, the earth works in a system of reciprocity and how do we get there? So this movement is, is really moving quickly. Um, and I think it's a really powerful, um, it's, it's, it's one of the powerful ways in the mosaic of actions that we have to take. I, I think it's just actually, you know, the thinking about it and listening to you talk about it, I think it's just such an important overarching frame. It's like, you know, in the if we're if we're dealing with things and challenging them legally, then it's like, you know, we're taking we're taking the the state, whatever the state is, you know, to court over the rights of the wild rice. Or if we're confronting politicians in the political realm, like Tim Waltz, who's been getting confronted a lot lately, the governor of Minnesota, you know, this is like an important frame. But also the cultural frame, one of the actually a really important saying that I feel like is really kind of spoken to people and and been an important part of these movements is water is life, which I actually feel like is very much like a part of this rights of nature frame. And there's like, you know, and many other pieces too. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually, it's just kind of like mind boggling in a way. Um, yeah. I think we're probably getting a little bit towards the end of our time. I'm wondering if Bob has any other questions. No, I, this has been fascinating. And I really um, just been listening because, you know, you three, know a million times about more about this than I ever will. So I've really enjoyed this and um, it's, you know, really kind of thought provoking. So thank you so much for, for everything you do as well as for talking uh, with us and Dodgers suck. <laughs> so I, I just want to say for people, for your listeners and viewers who want to have more information that we have a whole series of webinars on Movement Rights YouTube channel and on our movementrights.org uh, website. And if you're inspired, then you can go on and throw us some, some coin because we're really a very small organization doing really big work around a kitchen table. <laughs> virtual these days but yeah and we're all about supporting scrappy grassroots um yes. fundraising and you know youtube media and we'll put everything everything you want us to put into the show notes um on on our on our on this episode thank you um go ahead and we'll, we'll see some of you i think uh scott you'll be in dc Casey and I from uh, Movement Rights um, will be in Washington, D.C. for People versus Fossil Fuels Week of Action starting on Indigenous Peoples Day, October 11th through the 15th, um, risking arrest to tell 
President Biden, hey, declare a climate emergency and use your magic, uh, uh, you know, pen to uh, strike down these fossil fuel uh, pipelines and other fossil fuel projects because we're running out of time. So we got to do we got to do everything. So we'll be we'll be there risking arrest with you know thousands of other people. Uh, we'll see if uh, we'll see what. Stay tuned. It's been a real honor to be on your show. Thank you so much for inviting us, Bob and Scott. And nice to get to know you a little bit better, Bob. And just we'll all keep doing what we're doing and save as much as we can. Thank yes. you so much. Thanks so much. And yeah. Just to say, I've been, you know, uh, it's it's been great to be a colleague with you, Scott, uh, and over so many years. And just really thank you for both for having us on the show and for the work that you're doing, and uh, for the Scrappy Podcast. This is awesome. Thank you. We pride ourselves on our scrappiness and and bringing on folks who, you know, we think the rest of the world needs to hear. Even the, even if our world is small from the our size, but it's still, it's important and it gets out there. Um, folks, you've been listening to Penny Opal Plant and Shannon Biggs with Movement Rights on the Green and Red podcast. Uh, please check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. And then if you want to make a donation, go to greenredpodcast.org and hit the support button or go to Patreon and become a patron or a recurring donor at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. And everybody out there should make a lot of trouble and misbehave, but stay safe while you're doing it. Talk to you soon.